You're listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back into the Young Adult Podcast. We are in part five of our series, The Gospel of John. We've been walking through the Gospel of John for uh, about a month now, and it's just been absolutely incredible. Last week, Bo Nutting, one of our student ministries pastors, uh, brought uh, an incredible word. You can catch that on the last episode. You can also find all the previous messages in this series, and really for the last couple years on previous episodes as well. Uh, This week, we're going to be in John chapter 11. It's a story that you may be familiar with if you grew up in church. It may be a story that you're familiar with even if you didn't, and that is Jesus and Lazarus. And this is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And this story spans over 40 verses, so we're going to read a lot of scripture this week. Uh, but I'd really encourage you, read read this yourself. Dig into this yourself. It's a story that is worth reading over and over and over again. So we're going to be uh, in John chapter 11, and we're going to start right off the top in verse 1. It says this, says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God. Of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. This verse is really interesting because it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he waited two days. <laughs> and and you would think that maybe Jesus would have a little bit more giddy up, right? Like, like he loved Lazarus. He, he wanted to heal his friend. Like, he better sprint over there. And one of the things we'll see a little bit later is that uh, Bethany's not that far away. It's only two miles away. Like, this, this was something that he could have done in a couple hours or an hour, not something that he should have taken two days to do in our human minds. So we have to get out of our own human minds and understand that there's a reason that Jesus waited. And the, the first point is this. His timing is not our timing. His timing is not our timing. Just because we say move now and move in this way, it does not mean that he must comply. He is not a genie. He is God and we are not. And one of the things that we have to understand is that he isn't here to, to grant all of our wishes. We are here to serve the King of Kings. We must fight the urge to place a time frame on a move of God. If we believe that he is who he says he is, we have to trust that his timing is better than our own. I think about my own life, and it could be my marriage, it could be my kids, it could be my vocation, it could be whatever, that I know that if God would have worked on my timing, my life would not be what it is. But because he works on his own timing, man, he just showed up in way after way after way saying, hey, remember when you wanted this then, you wouldn't have been ready for it. But now you are. Remember when you didn't think that you could do this yet? I think that you can. Like That is just what God has done over and over and over in my life. And I think that if we all look at our lives, we could probably say, yeah, that's probably what he's done in ours too. We want to to operate on his timing, not our own. Next, 
one of the hopes is this, is that Jesus' assurance that he shows in this moment, right? He says, this sickness will not end in death. It will not end in death, but this is for the glory of God. His assurance should be our assurance, that he was so confident the end result would bring glory to God. Would that be our posture too? If we trust him in all situations in our life, would that be an assurance to us? Would we would we let that turn our life into something that is just like glorifying God over and over and over again, that we would be so sure that no matter what the situation that is happening presented in front of us, we would say, man, I'm assured of this, that no matter what happens in this season or the next, I want my life to be glorifying to God. So I'm going to have an assurance that he is going to work things out for my good. Lastly, God does not play games with us. I think it's really interesting to look at this verse and be like, why did God wait two days? Like, is, is, he, is some, he on one? Like, what's going on here? Like, is he, he got some kind of inside joke that I don't know about? And, and I think many of us have accepted a narrative that God is the puppet master and we are just playing in some kind of cosmic game. But that's not true. The reality is this, is that our own free will which God has granted us, he has given us, makes this world a really, really messy place. But from the beginning, God has created beauty from the mess. That in the midst of all the humanity, in the midst of all the brokenness, God has created beauty from the mess. One of the things that we have to understand is that we can try to be the author of our lives or we can allow God to be the author of our lives. And if we say, I'm surrendered and I want God to be the author of my life, then we have to let him hold the pen. Like, if he's writing the story, he's writing the story. We can't keep trying to take the pen back, being like, let me write things out in my time frame, time frame the way that I expect them to happen. That we need to just look at Jesus, look at God, and say, you must have a reason for doing things the way that you are doing them. And I think it's also important this. In the next verse, John chapter 11, verse 8, we see that there's more in play than whether Jesus wanted to be like bothered by the request to go heal his friend. It's not just like, ah, I don't feel like doing that. In fact, there's a lot going on in his life and the disciples' life. And we see this in this one sentence that happens in John chapter 11, verse 8. It says, Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going to go there again? So Mary and Martha called Jesus to come back to Lazarus, but for him to do that, he has to go into a place where people literally want him dead, where people want to kill him because of the message that he is bringing. And here's what we have to understand is that Jesus knew that if he went and did what he intended to do, it would set into motion the end of his earthly life. This miracle would be the beginning of the end. And it can be so easy to believe that Jesus was just sitting around twiddling his thumbs for two days, but I think it's safe to assume that he was in prayer. He was pursuing the purpose and the will of his father. That in those two days, he was like, God, do you want me to do this now? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not Jesus. I don't ever, I'm not ever going to claim to know everything that was going through Jesus' head. But I just wonder, like, if Jesus was like, hey, like, I want to go heal my friend, but this is a your will be done, not my will be done moment. And also understanding like, God, you could heal Lazarus right now before he dies. You could heal Lazarus in six weeks if I, if I wait that long, but because you're God and you can do whatever you want. You see, when Jesus is in this, these days that he's waiting, he's prayerfully pursuing the will of his father. Because this is simultaneously going to be the most powerful sign of Jesus' divinity and the primary reason that the religious elite wanted him dead. What Jesus knew those two days is what I hope that we begin to know throughout our lives. And is this, is that there is power in the waiting. 
There's power in the waiting. It can be so easy for us to see the seasons of little movement as wasted or see them as unimportant. But that comes from our posture, not his plans. What would happen if we intentionally sought the will of God and the lessons that he has for us when life seems to be progressing at a million miles an hour, but also when it seems like we're completely stuck in neutral? I think that if we intentionally pursued the will of the Father and said, what do you want to teach me in this season, no matter what the season looks like, we are going to become the people that God is calling us to be. We cannot allow ourselves to be people who waste the waiting. We cannot be people who allow ourselves to be people who waste the waiting. We want to use the waiting seasons to learn and to grow. Because here's the truth. There will undoubtedly be these flag-in-the-ground moments that mark our lives. We're going we're gonna to drive a stake into the ground. There's going to be this beautiful moment. And, and it's going to be something that is just like so awesome. And then the next moment that is like that isn't probably tomorrow. It's probably months away, years away, that there's going to be so much space between point A and point B that we have to understand that in between those flag in the ground moments, that is where deep transformational work happens. Like if we look at this like a relationship, let's just use that as an example. Say this, you get in a serious relationship, flag planted, you found somebody that you want to spend so much time with, that's point A. And point B is getting engaged, right? There's a lot of work that needs to happen between point A and point B. If you just rush through that process, you're not going to be who your spouse, who your future spouse wants you to be. If you get engaged, that's point B. Like you did the deep work, good things happen, point B. Now point C is marriage. Man, if you don't do deep work, if you don't put in effort in the waiting, right? You can see it. You set a date. You're like, hey, July of 2024, I can't wait. I'm going to be a husband. I'm going to be a wife. You can't just sit on your couch for the next year and say, okay, I can't wait to do that. No, you're going to spend the next year becoming the husband, becoming the wife that you think that your spouse deserves. Then you're going to get married and there's going to be so many, like this is just an analogy, but this, this applies to every area of our lives. The in-between waiting moments is where God does deep transformational work. If we're willing to dig in with him, we cannot be people who waste the waiting. Use the in-between moments to become who God has called you to be. The story goes on to say this in verses nine through 16. Jesus responds to the disciples as they're like, are you sure you want to go back there? Like, they just tried to kill you. And he says this, aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered, if anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will get well. So their, their human capacity is just showing over and over. They're like, oh, he's sick. He's getting a, a nice rest. That's great, right? When my kids are sick, I'm like, hey, why don't we go to bed early tonight? Some extra sleep, that's going to be the thing that helps you get better quicker. So they're just like, that's awesome that he's sleeping. And then it says this. It says, well, Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, like, okay, never mind. Lazarus, he's dead. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. 
really bleak. Hey, if he goes back to Judea, they might try to stone him again. Let's go with him, right? We're following this guy to the end. At face value, these verses are really a, a really confusing response in a lot of ways. But but Jesus doesn't leave words wasted. We know that he says things for a reason. The, in in his response, what he's saying is that he's not, he's not neglecting the reality of the danger that lays ahead. But what he is simply saying is, I am the light of the world. I have told you guys this. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not stumble. If you follow me, it will all work out. Whether we are walking straight into the jaws of death or we are walking into some kind of beautiful, beautifully simple situation, if you follow me, you will not stumble. And Thomas's response is really, really beautiful because he hears this. And remember, this is this is Thomas. If you're not familiar with scripture, Thomas gets a nickname. And it seems like such an unfair nickname because he's called Doubting Thomas. Like this is a disciple of Jesus. He he follows Jesus everywhere he goes. And yet after the resurrection, Jesus encounters the disciples. Jesus or Thomas is not there, and so he doubts. He's like, man, unless I can put my fingers in the place where the nails went into his hands and the spear went into his side, I don't know if I can believe this. And Jesus shows up. He doesn't get mad at Thomas. He doesn't strike him with a lightning bolt. He says, I'm going to show up again. So he shows up, and he sees Thomas. And, And this is what I love is that before all of that happens, what we see is a man who maybe has a, uh, a tendency to ask questions and maybe a tendency to actually have doubts. But this is a man who says, hey, he said, if you follow me, you will not stumble. And we said, if you go into Judea, you might get stoned again. Let's follow him. Let's go so that we may die with him because we're going to follow him no matter what. And I want to be like Thomas. Even if I have questions, even if I have doubts, I never want to stop following Jesus into every single situation. And I hope that's true of you too. The passage goes on to say this in verses 17 through 27. It says, When Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the, in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. So the next point is this, if only... If only. This interaction between Martha and Jesus is powerful. We see Martha full of faith in who Jesus is, believing like, yes, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world, but also struggling and wrestling with her humanity and her own expectations. Right? She knew that Jesus was the Messiah. She knew that Jesus could heal. She knew that Jesus could restore and that that, that is what she wanted for him to do. Like, heal my brother, restore my brother, but he didn't. And then that's where the if only comes in. If, if only you had been here sooner. If only you had done what I prayed for. If only if you had shown up the way that I expected you to show up. Then Lazarus, my brother, wouldn't be sick. I think that we have similar if onlys. If only I got the job. 
If only he noticed me. If if only I wouldn't have done that. If only I would have done that. If only I would have taken that opportunity instead of that opportunity. You see, Martha's, if only, like ours, was rooted in what might have been. But Jesus' response invites her into the future, into what is going to be, not into what might have been, but into what is going to be. Jesus is about to take her, if only, and blow it out of the water. Oh, you wanted your brother healed. You wanted your brother's sickness to go away. Well, instead, I'm going to raise your brother from the dead, and his story is going to be told for thousands and thousands of years and people are going to come to know me and know freedom and forgiveness and grace because of what I'm about to do in your brother's life. My hope is that we can become people who do not get stuck in our if onlys. When we get stuck there, we're trying to bring the past into the present. And Jesus wants us to see that the future is what he is offering us. He wants to blow our if-onlys out of the water. Would we be people who exchange those if-onlys with if-Jesus? If we can do that, we're trading what might have been for a posture that says, if Jesus is who he said he is, then I cannot wait to see what will be. Not what might have been, but what will be. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is the God who hung the stars in the sky, if he is the God who knit me together in my mother's womb, then I cannot wait. I am not interested in bringing the past into the present. I am interested in seeing the future that God has ordained for me. Would we be people who change our if-onlys into if-Jesus? If Jesus is in the middle of this, then I am on board. Verses 32 through 37 go on to say this. It says, As soon as Mary came to Jesus, to where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, there's her if only, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? The next point this week is word made flesh. Word made flesh. One of the most common things that will be pointed out about this passage is that Jesus shows a a beautifully simple truth through his tears, that he was fully human, that when he was around grief, he started to grieve. We, we understand that, right? Like our, our own human experience. Like we read a story about people that we don't even know, a loss of a, a child, the loss of a family member, something, Sally, you see a tragedy, an earthquake or a hurricane, and you start to grieve for people that you've never met in your life because we are created with empathy. When you have somebody who goes through tragedy that you know personally and you sit next to them, you feel it and you grieve with them. And Jesus in this moment is showing his, his empathy and his human humanity, seeing his friends weeping over the death of another one of his friends. And it says that Jesus wept. But we can't stop at the truth that he was fully human. That is without a doubt true. He, he put on flesh. 
and became and entered into our world and became one of us so that he could experience life the way that we experience life so that he could meet us in the midst of our pain and our brokenness. N.T. Wright says this. He says, the word through whom the worlds were made, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word through whom the worlds were made weeps like a baby at the grave of his friend. Only when we stop and ponder this will we understand the full mystery of John's gospel. Only when we put away our high and dry pictures of who God is and replace them with pictures in which the word who is, the word who is God can cry with the world's crying. When we do that, we will discover discover what the word God really means. Jesus, God made flesh, was engaging with the sorrow of death. One, because he grieved with those experiencing grief, but two, because death was not a part of the plan. The humanity and our brokenness brought death into existence. One of the beautiful things about what Jesus is doing in this moment is that he doesn't scoff at the grief and the sorrow. He doesn't come in with a smirk on his face and be like, ah, if you guys only knew what I was about to do. Like, I don't know why you're crying. I'm about to raise this guy from the dead. No, he comes in and he sits intimately with his people. And he weeps. And he grieves. And he allows them to feel sorrow. And he feels sorrow himself. And then he changes everything. Would we let that settle into our spirit, knowing that he, who is all things, who created all things, is intimately close in the sorrow. He's intimately close in our pain and our brokenness, and he's also intimately close in our joy and our success. He is ever-present, but he is intimately involved. Verses 38 through 44 go on to say this, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead for four days. So this is Martha just being practical. Like his body is decaying. It is disgusting. Do not roll that stone away. The stench will be unbearable. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And when they removed the stone, Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound, hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. The next point is this, God listens. There was not a shadow of a doubt in Jesus Jesus of whether or not his friend was going to be resurrected. He knew it from the beginning. And even Jesus would not take, take credit for it. Instead, he highlights the Father. I love N.T. Wright's take on this part as well. He, he argues that when the stone was rolled away, the stench that Martha was worried about was not present. And that is why that Jesus says, thank you that you heard me. When did he hear you, Jesus? When did he hear you? Oh, in the two days that I waited. God was listening. I was petitioning on behalf of my friend. 
Don't let his body decay. I, I, I want to raise him from the dead. I want you to raise him from the dead. I want you to do what you do, God. In the waiting, Jesus did not waste it. He prayed and prayed and prayed, and he was confident that God listened. Thank you that you heard me, and thank you that you hear me. He says those two things. It's so powerful. The father heard his prayers, and Jesus knew without a shadow of a doubt that his prayers were answered. And when the stone was rolled away and there was no smell, it was because there was not a dead, decaying corpse, but a living, breathing, restored friend. We have that same access to the Father. And I pray that we would understand that God has heard us and God still hears us, that he is listening to us as we pray and petition for our own lives and on behalf of the lives of the people around us. Lastly, it's important to point this out. Lazarus's resurrection did lead to Jesus's death. Lazarus's resurrection led to Jesus's death. The immediate section of scripture after this is entitled The Plot to Kill Jesus. That Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. People run back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they start to plot on how to kill Jesus. They, they actually plot to kill Lazarus, too. They're like, this guy is a symbol, and we need to kill him, too. Like we discussed earlier, this, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was time to get rid of the problem, and the problem was Jesus. But what's so beautiful about this is this moment serves as a picture of what Jesus does for all of us. At the cost of his own life, he brings us out of death and volunteers to take our place, knowing full well the cost, knowing that his, he resurrected Lazarus from a tomb. He knew that this would begin his walk towards one as well. That as he brought Lazarus out of death, he knew that his journey towards death was now beginning. And he did it willingly. In that moment, people were absolutely blown away that Jesus just raised a man from the dead. But I pray in this moment, in this current season, we would realize that he has done so much more. We live on this side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he doesn't just offer to, to, to resurrect us bodily. He offers to resurrect us for eternity, that we get eternal life with him. If we just surrender our lives to him and we get rid of our if-onlys and we say, if Jesus is who he said he is, then I surrender my life to him. What awaited Jesus was the weight of a cross. What awaited Jesus was the cold of a tomb. Also that we would never have to experience the sorrow of, a, sorrow of life separated from him. Let's never lose sight of that. Thank you for listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. If you are in the Billings area, we would love to see you at our in-person gatherings on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. If you're unable to attend in person, there are always ways to engage online. Follow along through Instagram at faithchapel.ya or find our ministry page at faithchapel.cc. You are loved.